0: We remain standing in honor of our gospel reading this morning from the first chapter of John. And the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. made a new year's resolution a couple days ago. And my new year's resolution has to do with our 8:30 service at Highland Baptist Church. I want you to know it has nothing to do about the people at 8:30. It has nothing to do with what we do at 8:30 worship. It has to do with something that appears on my phone always during 8:30 worship. There is something set within my phone. I did not say that during 8.30 worship on Sundays, this was the best time. I guess when I got a new phone, it was just programmed this. I, um, I get an alert now every Sunday during 8.30 service about my screen time. <laughs> I will be in the midst of worship, surrounded by people who I love, singing hymns of faith and being inspired. And then I find out whether I did a good job this week on my phone. You know, was I on it less or was I on it more? And it shows me the amount of time. And I first thought, this is wonderful. This is an opportunity. I am going to better myself. I'm not going to waste my life on a screen. Now that I have this information, I'm going to vow that I'm going to be on my phone less But I found that it's not like I didn't know that beforehand. Um, I found instead that every Sunday when it appeared, I got resentful. I considered what happened this week, why was I on my phone so much, or felt proud if I hadn't been on my phone as much. And so my New Year's resolution is a couple days ago I turned off the notification about my screen time. You see, the metrics of my screen time on my phone, um, it does matter, and I know there's a lot of articles out there, how we're lost on our phones and all that stuff, but actually that metric does not evaluate my life that well. At the end of my life, no one will come and say, you know, Carol didn't spend too much time on her phone in a new year, there are so many ways that we can consider how we can be better people this year. And there are voices this week that have called you to count different metrics, to consider in the new year, the new decade, what are all the places you want to travel, what are the, what is the money you want to save, the books you want to read, the calories you want to eat or not eat, the steps that you want to walk, the screen time usage that you want to see, but when we gather here, what is the metric that you want your life to be evaluated on? Those metrics are well and good, but what ultimately is the metric that you want for your life? Our family moved into a home 2 years ago and discovered once moving in with it being winter time, we could see through the trees with no leaves and I'm not sure I knew this before we bought the house, but there is a cemetery right by our house. I mean right by our house. It is on the other edge of this fence, and you can only notice it if you can see the stone obelisk that is very tall that first caught my eye like, what is that amidst the trees? And then I lower my eye, and I see this iron fence encircling it, and inevitably we went over to look and found that there are a few graves from a family that is known. There's a street named after this family. They uh, owned that land in 1800s, and um, uh, the matriarch and patriarch of this family from 1802 to 1875 and 1808 to 1873, and then a grave for their son, and then two footstones with no initials, I assume to maybe be children who died early or something like that, Now, it might be strange, but I trust you enough to tell you that one of my favorite uh, characteristics about our house is how close it is to that cemetery. I would have never gone looking for a house close to a cemetery. (laughs) But there's something about living my life, our life, where we can get consumed with so many things and to look over and consider what really matters in our life. I don't know this family, but I imagine that love mattered in their life. I imagine that the small things that worried them didn't matter ultimately in the end. And those are just physical markers of a family there in the 1800s. There were people who lived on that land long before Native American tribes who lived on the land where I live, and there will be people who live far after me on that land. I want a life that doesn't get lost in metrics of self-improvement, even though those can be great. I want my life to be measured by the metrics of what matters, what remains long after I am gone, when all else fails. Those of us in our community have been reminded about how fragile life is this week. And you may not be someone who knew Michael French. You may have just walked in the sanctuary for the first moment, but I know that you have had moments in your life where you remember and realize how fragile life is and that we have to count our days with a sobering and awe-filled respect for breath in our lungs and the people around us. The challenge is that most of us would rather distract ourselves with counting our screen time. Are counting, our calories, because it's something that we think we could control. But to lean into broader, deeper metrics, we're going to need a God who dwells with us, not just in good times of Christmas, but in the winter and in the darkness. We are going to need a faith that is robust and vast and deep, a faith stronger than your own individual faith. Going it alone in grief is a very lonely place to be. And I imagine wherever you were when you heard about Michael French this week, you probably wanted to go then be with somebody else who knew Michael, to gather as a community to remember him and try to make sense of what cannot be made sense. We need a tapestry of faith with threads of belief from everyone knitting us together to carry us through Could we enter into a new decade not running from these truths and numbing ourselves, but courageously loving each other within them? Wendell Berry writes a lot about membership, about this idea of our lives being connected. And he writes a poem called Rising that just stuck out to me this week. Here's a portion of it. Any man's death could end the story His mourners, having accomplished or accompanied him to the grave through all he knew, turned back, leaving him complete. But this is not the story of a life. It is the story of lives knit together, overlapping in succession, rising again from grave after grave. We live in an era where loneliness is described as an epidemic. And all analysis would suggest that Christianity is in decline right now in our country. And there's no greater irony that this life that we share right here is exactly what people are craving outside of our doors. A story of lives knit together, overlapping in succession, rising again from grave to grave. I thought this week, as I do sometimes in moments like these, what do people do without the church When a life is lost unexpectedly, what do people do without the church, without a community who grieves terribly with this? We may not be evangelicals, or call yourself an evangelical, but surely we have some good news to share. The word is becoming flesh right here among us, and our lives are knit together and held in Christ as one. The Holy One dwells in our midst. We are seeing Christ's glory with our own eyes. Some people are just able easily to see Christ's glory, and that's wonderful. Most of us need some help. Most of us have to come to a space to share about our lives and see where the glory is when we cannot see it for ourselves. True faith is only possible when the story of our faith is knit together, overlapping in succession. If you've come to our Cloud of Witnesses series, you know that. People will sit up here and they share about their faith. And those stories go with you as if they happened to you. That you lived with them. That their faith becomes your own faith. We are a people whose faith accumulates through the years. Because we learn from one another. So what if our metric as the church is how we are knit together? So that your faith blends into mine and mine into yours. Until it is a beautiful tapestry through which others could not tell where your faith begins and mine ends. But there are reasons why screens are so tempting to live behind. For living woven together with others face to face requires vulnerability and courage and grief. A willingness to be broken hearted when another grieves. And after a week like this with Michael's death, you know deep in your bones that there's an emotional depth required to be in a church. It's not that it's just about a church, though. Ultimately, when we are in places in our lives, we could recognize that there are people with us, even if they're not physically by our side. It might be a special place where you have a memory. Even just yesterday, um, we took our oldest two kids to a UK game. And amidst all the lights and the fireworks, which terrified some of them, um, and all of it, I couldn't help but think of my grandfather who had passed away, who loved UK basketball games. And being here in the midst of this arena and this sacred moment of carrying him with me as if I could just look over and there he would be. I hear when in, I'm in the sanctuary, I, when I, sometimes when we sing, I imagine all the voices who once sang in the sanctuary as if we're all here together. Our faith is not just about the present moment, who, people who are with us right now. Because we carry the past. We are people of scripture. Other people's stories from the past matter to us. Our pillars of faith, who taught you um, what it means to believe, you carry those people with you. And we carry a promise for the future. All that exists right here, knit together. And we have to remember that in the memories that we carry... In the stories we tell one another, we are transported and carried into the future. Tanahasi Coates' novel, The Water Dancer, is all about memory and the power of memory and uses this idea of conduction, this idea that actually those who were enslaved were freed, not just physically, but by memory. By recounting things that are painful to remember to one another, they were carried to freedom. It's a powerful read because our country lives with amnesia most of the time about painful memories. And in this one scene, Harriet, also known as Harriet Tubman, Harriet, the character, is with Hiram, and she leads him out in the dead of night to a pier. And on the pier, fog begins to roll in, And he follows Harriet out, who begins to walk on water. It is hard for him to believe how this is happening, but he trusts Harriet so much for the stories that have come from her. And so he follows her out, and she begins naming friends of theirs that they have lost. And she says to him, Even in the pain of those memories, we forgot nothing, you and I. To forget is to truly slave. To forget is to die. Remember, friend, for memory is the chariot, and memory is the way. And memory is the bridge from the curse of slavery to the boon of freedom. That even in painful memories that we think we cannot bear that when we bear them together, we are transported. And Harriet begins to glow, to emit light, as she names all these people from her past, and Hiram is able to see them. And Hiram tells us this. What happened then was a kind of communion a chain of memory extending between the two of us that carried more than any words I can now offer you here because the chain was ground into some deep and locked away place where my Aunt Emma lived, where my mother lived, where a great power lived. A chain of memory extending between the two of us, a story told over and over again until we find our place within it. Does that sound familiar to you? Because on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus gathered with his friends and he said, here is my body and here is my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Whenever Harriet or later Hiram would experience conduction, they would be exhausted afterwards. They would sleep for days. Because there are some memories that are so painful that you're going to have an emotional hangover for a long time. And yet telling stories even when we have grief can liberate us if not for the disciples who did not shy away from telling painful stories where would we be the first disciples of jesus had to know how they would come off in the retelling of the stories that the metrics of their lives would show them sometimes to be courageous and sometimes to be cowards But it's as if they knew that the metrics of their life had nothing to do with that, but it had to do with the metric of the one who was with them, who is grace and who is light and who is forgiveness. Barry's poem has one line that is striking to me. He calls grief a severe gift. He writes, By grief more inward than darkness, the dead becomes the intelligences of life. Where the tree falls, the forest rises. Where the tree falls, the forest rises. Trees fall in our midst. But God raises a forest from what remains, as if death cannot end love, as if death actually just causes love to grow and abound and reproduce. So here's a metric I can give my lifetime in seeking after. How much divine love might abound if I can give my heart and my soul and my full self to a tapestry of faith, weaving my life together with people. We gather this morning for communion, for the remembering. And whether your knees are weak, or your hands are too shaky, or your heart too full, know this you come to the table alongside the saints those who fill these windows, those who we remember in our hearts, the saints yet to come. You never come to communion alone. There is a chain of memory extending between you and me, carrying us where we could not go alone. Anyone's death could end the story, but this is not the story of a life. It is the story of lives knit together, overlapping in succession. Or maybe as the, uh, the Gospel of John might have written, Anyone's crucifixion could have ended the story. But this is not the story of a word. This is the story of the word, knitting all flesh together, overlapping in succession from the Father's heart into our own being, rising again from darkness after darkness. From his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Amen.